52 Sundays. It's what we get each year. Advent, and then Christmas. Epiphany, and then Lent. Holy Week, and Easter. The Ascension, and Pentecost. And then all those green Sundays. Oh yeah, there's a smattering of saints' days and other observances mixed in there too. But it all marches forward toward this. The last Sunday of the church year. A Sunday on which we hear of what will take place at the end of the age when the Savior returns to separate believers and unbelievers. The righteous from the unrighteous. Those who will be saved from those who will be condemned. And having proclaimed and confessed over and over again, Sunday after Sunday, year in and year out, that we are saved only by grace through faith for the sake of Christ's suffering and death alone, and not because of works, what do we get as the capstone to the church year? We get a gospel lesson about doing good works. What's more, we get a gospel lesson that seems to scream out that doing good works gains you admission into heaven. And that not doing good works gets you condemned into the eternal fire of hell. Whoa! How do we reconcile this one, gang? Is God speaking out of both sides of his mouth, trying to confuse us? Is it any wonder that some pastors bail on the lectionary, choosing instead to preach on Bible passages that are a little less problematic or better suit their own personal agendas? It's an easier path than dealing with sections like this, that's for sure. But there's always a temptation to pick and to choose sections of the Scriptures that we like or we understand or we find easy, and to set aside those that we don't. That's what heretics and false religions do. However, if we're going to accept the whole counsel of God as the Bible reveals it to us, we can't tiptoe around the hard parts. We're going to have to wrestle with them, struggle with our frequent confusion, and finally surrender to the reality that we just don't know it all. Nor can we always figure it out with our limited human intellect. It's been a fundamental principle of biblical interpretation for a long time that we are to use the clearer portions of Scripture to understand the less clear. We are fortunate then that this Gospel reading today from Matthew is paired up with the other lessons, those from Ezekiel and from 1 Corinthians. These readings, along with, of course, the many, many other portions of God's Word, help us to avoid the error of taking small snippets, such as today's Gospel lesson, and spinning a mistaken understanding of just what causes human beings to be judged as sheep or as goats. If you look first at the Ezekiel text, you will note that it is God who is the source of all of the positive activity found therein. God does the searching and the seeking. God does the gathering and the rescuing. God does the feeding and provides the resting places. God binds up the injured and strengthens the weak. It is his enemies who do the scattering and who create the danger, 
who cause the harm and cause the straying, who push and thrust at his flock. But in the end, it is God who will do the judging and God who will unite all of his own under his one shepherd, his one prince. Likewise, in our epistle lesson from St. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, we see a distinction between the horrible harm caused by the sin that arises out of the rebellion of humanity and the great good brought about by God's restoration in Christ. Through Adam came death. Through Jesus comes resurrection and life. By God's enemies come oppression and separation of humanity from God. But by His glorious action, Christ destroys all of those things that are not of God. He delivers us. He delivers we who comprise the kingdom of God to His Father. Not our doing, His doing. But that seems to run counter to what we hear in Matthew 25 this morning, doesn't it? Yes, the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, will still do the separating of the sheep and the goats, the righteous from the evil. But it appears on the surface that His judgment will be based upon our actions, on our good works toward those who need assistance. It's often said that ignorance is bliss. And it seems on the surface that in unknowingly doing charitable works toward the downtrodden, we are made righteous. Those who are called to inherit the kingdom are those who have no recollection of feeding the hungry or quenching the thirsty or welcoming the stranger or clothing the naked or visiting the sick and the imprisoned. Is it possible then that a person can be unwittingly earning their way into heaven by doing good works? Does carrying out the social gospel provide a means to salvation? A closer examination of the text helps us answer those questions. First of all, note the first words of the king, the son of man, to those on his right hand. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Not, Come, you who bless others, but come, you who are blessed. As is always the case, we are merely the passive recipients of that which God would have us receive. The fact is, we bring nothing of value to God, and we really provide nothing of value to others that God did not provide to us in the first place. As Luther said when he was nearing the end of his own earthly life, we are all beggars, it is true. Beggars have nothing to offer. Beggars can only hope for the grace and the mercy of another. A bit later on in the text, the king, Jesus, replies to the surprise of the righteous ones, As you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. But Christ's brothers are not the totality of humanity. His brothers and sisters are those who have been adopted into the family of God. His brothers and sisters are those who, by baptism and by the gift of faith, are made sons and daughters of the Father. Those who reject the offered gift of faith are not Christ's brothers and sisters, but they instead remain alienated from the household of God. These alienated ones are those whom the king orders to depart from him, the ones that he calls cursed and whom he casts out into the eternal fire reserved for the devil and all of his angels. 
These are those whose relationship with God is all about trying to stay on His good side, who want to attempt to cross the T's and dot the I's. And yet in doing so, they neglect to live and to serve as Christ did, bringing blessings to the undeserving, without thought of self and with complete trust in the Heavenly Father to guide them along the difficult path and to provide all things needful. And make no mistake, you and I are undeserving. We are all beggars, for we are all sinners. No one is righteous, not even one, the Scriptures say. Therefore, for us to be called righteous, something must take place from outside of us. And then that righteousness must be bestowed upon us by the one to whom it belongs. It is not by our initiative. It is not on account of our character or our attributes or our actions. It is a righteousness that is completely alien to us. But it is a righteousness by which, through God's grace, we are naturalized. We are made citizens of the heavenly kingdom. The words of Jesus in today's Gospel lesson ought to be both a warning and a comfort to us. They ought to give us pause, first of all, to contemplate our horrible fate if we had not been chosen to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. It's a warning, too, against the easy but dangerous cop-out that we often hear, that of being spiritual but not religious. Just what does that mean, after all? Well, it means someone who wants to have the blessings of emotional serenity without truly surrendering oneself to God's ways. It means giving lip service to some higher calling while keeping one's own priorities intact. It means wanting to live on the mountaintop without living down in the trenches with Jesus, without answering His call to action which indicates the presence of a vibrant and spirit-led life. You might answer to that, but, but pastor, the Bible tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Quite so. And I rejoice that you confess just that. But woe to those who set self-determined boundaries on the Holy Spirit in their lives, who wall Him off into that little compartment called Sunday morning once in a while. Woe to those who have but a haughty intellectual grasp of the faith instead of a humble and ingrained faith in which God grasps them and moves them daily. Woe also to those whose faith is a selfish one, measured on a hidden balance sheet in their hearts, rather than a generous faith which knows and trusts that God has called them to be an instrument of His love and mercy to others. For we are called to care for both the spiritual and the physical needs of others. His kingdom come, His will be done, first and foremost to be sure. Forgive those who trespass against us, absolutely. And insofar as we can, be a channel by which daily bread comes from our Heavenly Father to His creature, creatures here on earth. Having said that, we are not to lose sight of Jesus when we cast our eyes upon the hungry, the thirsty, the lonely, the ill-clothed, the sick or the imprisoned either. We have to remember the social gospel is not the gospel. The social gospel does not save either its givers or its recipients. It preserves and improves temporal life, that's all. 
It may even open doors for the proclamation of the real Gospel. The message that Jesus Christ, crucified for the forgiveness of sins and resurrected to provide everlasting life, is alone our Lord and Savior. But the social Gospel does not provide salvation. In understanding this, in believing this, in confessing this, and very importantly, in living this, we come to realize that this text and all of God's Word does not advocate salvation by works, but both salvation by faith and works by faith. Those who are God's sheep of His right hand, those who are called blessed by the Father, they are not those who are deserving of it on account of their works for the undeserving. For Jesus came not to save the deserving, but the undeserving, the least deserving, you and me, sinners through and through. He is the only one whose actions, whose works are worthy of praise and thanksgiving. He is the only one who can earn salvation. With what He has earned, though, and by what He has paid at the cost of His pierced body and His spilled blood, Jesus has bought you back. Jesus has redeemed you. Jesus has rescued you from the clutches of the devil and from the eternal punishment of fire that awaits those who reject God's gift. He gives. We receive. He pays. We enjoy. He acts. We are blessed. He moves, and we are brought from sin and death to righteousness and life. He presents us with our neighbor's needs, and He gives us the strength and the resources and the opportunities to fill them. Our hymn of the day says it so eloquently, particularly the final stanza, and I hope you didn't miss its message as you were focusing on the singing. Lord of glory, You have bought us with Your lifeblood as the price, never grudging for the lost ones that tremendous sacrifice. Give us faith to trust You boldly, hope to stay our souls on You. But, O best of all Your graces, with Your love, our love renew. As we observe the last Sunday of this church year and we contemplate the things of the end times and of eternity, let us not lose sight of that which God has given for us to do in the present. First of all, to trust in His promises. Also to care for His people. And also to receive with praise and with thanksgiving the foretaste of the feast to come. His Son's body and lifeblood, sacrificed once for you on the cross. The only good work that brings forgiveness and life. In Jesus' holy name, Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord until that day when He returns to bring you to the heaven prepared for you from before time immemorial. Amen.